Father, we bow before you. We pray that your Holy Spirit just take charge here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I have a few remarks that uh, uh, come from from Mark, and the the other uh, uh, source that I was going to deal with was uh, was the book of First Peter. The temptation was to uh, set Mark aside. That's too tough. Not easy. Go to 1 Peter. You've memorized it. You know it. All you got to do is get up there and just say it. You can do it in 30 minutes and you'll be done and out of there. But I ain't going to do that. I'm, uh, I'm going to stay with Mark. I like Mark. Maybe it's because he was a student of Peter. And I'm told that uh, a lot of what's in Mark probably came to him through the Holy Spirit from Peter. So maybe that's, that's why the Holy Spirit has settled us in, uh, in Mark, second chapter. Mark's um, writing, uh, according to those who know, is not the best Greek. Uh, I'm told that he's ungrammatical and the syntax is a little rough at times. But the story he tells is good. It's great. And he tells it uh, in a fast pace. I mean, Mark, uh, uh, it's a news alert. Uh, he, he, uh, he gets us right into the thing and, and on. Uh, so we're going to go to the second chapter, and then we're going to spend a little time in the first 12 verses. But before, let's just kind of review where Mark takes us in that first chapter and, and how far he takes us in such a, a short time. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist comes out. We, we meet him. And, uh, and then Jesus comes out. And he's baptized. And then Mark takes us to his temptation. And uh, then... Then he has Jesus preaching the gospel uh, all throughout Galilee. Uh, on the way, he picks up four disciples. There in the first chapter, Peter and Andrew, James and John, get them away from the lake and they follow him. And then Mark takes Jesus into a synagogue. And uh, he's uh, preaching there in Capernaum. And... Uh, that's, by the way, is where he meets the man with the unclean spirit. And Jesus uh, uh, sends him packing. And from that point, the fame of Jesus really just began 
began to, to spread. I don't know that I can really understand how great was the notoriety of Jesus among the populace. But his fame began to spread there in the, that first chapter. Uh, then uh, Mark has him going home with Peter. And you know the story. Peter's mother-in-law is ill and, and Jesus uh, raises her up, heals her. And uh, then by nightfall, huge crowds have come in to, uh, to see Jesus for healings. And, and so evil spirits are cast out. And people who are ill are healed. And uh, his fame then really began to spread. Uh, that next morning, Jesus is up and out early. He's really not wanting to handle the crowds like that uh, at that time. It's done according to his timetable. Uh, so uh, Peter and maybe one or two others, they found him out there in the country and, and they said, hey, people are looking for you. And he said, tell you what, let's, let's leave Capernaum. So they did. And uh, uh, they went and he began to preach in other towns. And uh, then he wound up meeting that leper. And, uh, and he healed him. And then he said, now, don't tell people about this. Uh, go to the priest and do what you're supposed to do to get back into, into society. But just other than that, keep it to yourself. Well, we know that the man didn't do that. And from the healing of that leper, uh, the fame of Jesus uh, just went wild. So now... Mark has us here in the second chapter. And uh, apparently things have kind of settled down a little bit. And uh, uh, Jesus returns to Capernaum. So the word tells us when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried before men. Being unable to get him, get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there. There were some Pharisees also. 
and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Okay. Now, Jesus has already, according to Mark, demonstrated his authority over all kinds of diseases and demons. And now he wants us to understand that he also has the authority to forgive sins. That's what the heart of this beautiful, unforgettable miracle is. So Mark puts together the story. So let's, let, let's look, take a look at the cast that Mark's dealing with. First of all, there's the crowd that's there. And there's the paralytic. And then there's Jesus, the Savior. And then there are the leaders, those hostile leaders. Uh, and Mark kind of breaks the story into, into three parts. We've got the setting. And uh, we've got the action. And then we have the reaction to that. So... The setting is this crowd that's curious. Most of them just, just curious. The action involves the believing paralytic, the forgiving savior, and those hostile leaders. The reaction comes from the astonished crowd. So let's kind of just work our way through Mark's story. We'll begin with that curious crowd and get the setting. The word says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Many were gathered together there. That's probably just a glorious understatement. Uh, 
Folks, that, that had to be a mob scene in that house. There was no longer any room for anybody, not even near the door. The place was jammed. The door was jammed. They were there for the healings or to watch them. But Jesus was teaching that crowd. Now, uh, the word had just had brought in. Just, just imagine that. They're at the door. They're at the windows. You can, there is no way that you can get into that house. It's completely full. There's no room. So, uh, th so that's the setting. Now, the action. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. They couldn't get him in. Uh, they couldn't get him through the door because it was jammed. Verse 4 says, being unable to get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, which reminds us that it was a, a curious crowd. They weren't particularly a sympathetic crowd. Uh, if they had been shown any kind of sympathy surely when four guys bring up a paralytic to the door somebody would have given way and, and let them in but it didn't happen the house was so packed they were curious and they were there to see some healing and maybe even have somebody heal themselves uh, so they removed the roof above him and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, uh, let's think about those houses, this particular house that we're talking about, that Mark's talking about. Uh, it no doubt is a one-story house, obviously it's a one-story house, uh, and it had a large center room. Some people might call it uh, the great room. And uh, uh, one story with, with an external roof. We're told that a lot of houses, maybe most houses, had that, uh, the, the external uh, staircase. Um, so that's what they did. They, they took this guy up those external stairs. Now, they got to the roof. And it's, uh, it's made of stuff that you might expect for those days. Uh, there, are, there are a few beams, and uh, you know, large beams on the roof. And uh, then in between those larger beams, there would be smaller pieces of wood and uh, sticks. And then there would be something called thatch. Uh, uh, that might be uh, thistles. Uh, it might even be some grain poured in there. And uh, so that was the thatch. Uh, so, so the beams and then the, the sticks and then the thatch. And uh, then 
there would be mud and mud and mud on top of that thatch. Uh, uh, then on top of the mud, there were tiles. So we got, the, we got these beams, got some little pieces of stick and wood. You got the thatch. You got piles of mud. Then you got tiles. You kind of get the picture of what they're, what they're dealing with up there as they're trying to get Jesus, get that man to Jesus. That's the roof. And that's why Mark says that they had to dig through the roof because they had to remove the tile and then start digging through that combination of mud and thatch uh, to find a place where they could pull up some sticks, uh, pull it apart, and create a place large enough to lower a man on a bed of some kind through the roof. So that's what's going on. Uh, they went up to the roof. And then, when they got up there, first of all, they had to determine before, now before we start digging, we got to determine where is, where is Jesus? They had to determine exactly where he was because they didn't want to lower the man somewhere else in the room. And that mob that wouldn't even let them in in the first place. So these four guys figured out where Jesus was exactly. Uh, if they lowered this poor fellow anywhere else in the room, then they would have to work their way through this immovable crowd so the four men made an accurate assessment of where Jesus was. So picture that. Here's Jesus in the middle of this humongous crowd pressing in, and uh, he's teaching, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And all of a sudden, some mud and stuff begins to fall down uh, on his head. Uh, thatch begins to come down. There's chunks of mud coming down all over the place. And, and it's not just on Jesus. It's, it's on a lot of people around him. And so, I mean, people are looking up. This is a horrible distraction. You know, those of us who teach, you know, we hate distractions. I'm sure uh, the people who were there did not appreciate the distraction. Uh, but these are such determined people to get this guy through, and it just, the the hole just keeps getting bigger and more stuff just keeps falling down on everybody. And uh, the hole gets bigger and bigger. Uh, I don't know uh, how long it would take to dig uh, a hole, what is it, four by six or something like that. 
uh, to lower the man down. Uh, it was a little bit of danger involved in that stuff, falling down on people. It certainly was dirty. That was a mess. Uh, one might even call it a major de demolition. Luke says they calculated accurately and dropped the man right in front of Jesus. Mark says, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, we know this about these men. They believed that Jesus could heal. They had a, they had a kind of a faith. Uh, they had a compassionate faith. Somewhere that day, they had gotten together and they felt compassion for this poor paralytic friend of theirs. And that compassion led them to say, let's do something for him. This man, Jesus, is here. Uh, so they decided to take him to Jesus. Well, when they got there, they can't get through the door. They can't get through the windows. They, there's no way they can get them to Jesus. Him to Jesus. So they would not give up. Not only did they have a compassionate faith, they had a persistent faith. We're going to do this. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, here's the stairs. There's the roof. He's on the inside. So we find out these guys have a creative faith. They're compassionate. They're persistent. And they're a little bit creative. Maybe a whole lot creative. Now, that's going to take some courage. Not their house. What, what, what was going to happen? Then they go up on top of that roof and start digging. And uh, somebody challenges them. So they have to have a little bit of, a little bit of courage. Uh, they would certainly have to take care of the damage. So their faith was sacrificial. And then finally... That faith that these guys had was unified. They had, they had a compassionate faith. They had a persistent faith. They had a creative faith. They had courageous faith. They had sacrificial faith. And they had unified faith. They had faith. They all had faith that Jesus could heal that guy. It's the same eh, well, It's the same kind of faith that you and I have when we go to a restaurant. We go in and we order, and we have faith that the stuff that they're going to bring us to eat is OK to eat. Now we don't go back in the kitchen. Probably a good thing that we don't go back in the kitchen. But uh, we eat the, We eat the food because we have faith. Or maybe it's the kind of faith, Merlin, yeah, when you and Shirley and the rest of us 
have we put faith we put in physicians when they say hey you know we're going to have to go in and slice you and, and work on you now we have faith that that's going to get done uh, we don't know how those doctors treat their families or whether they're honest in their finances we don't know anything about them but we have faith that it's going to get done well that's the kind of faith that um, these guys had. Uh, but for the paralytic, there was something more. There was something different about his faith. Uh, it was more than just human faith. Uh, uh, Jesus saw the faith in all of them. He, he says it. But he narrows his statement uh, down when he says specifically to one man, the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, he didn't say, say that to the rest. He told, told the paralytic that. Uh, Jesus saw in that paralytic line there a faith that was not visible to everybody else. So what did Jesus see in this man? What kind of faith? It wasn't the natural faith. It wasn't that human faith. Jesus saw a spiritual faith. This story is not just about a healing. It's about salvation. This man's faith was not limited to believing that Jesus could heal him. This man believed that Jesus was the one who offered salvation to those who repent. He saw the real kind of faith, the faith that saves. Jesus knew what that man wanted. Jesus knew he wanted healing for sure. But far more than that, that man wanted forgiveness in his heart. And he believed that this was the one that would bring him forgiveness from God. And so Jesus, at this moment, on the basis of his own personal authority, absolved the man of every one of his sins. By the way, <laughs> that forgiveness was without works. You know, there's no works involved there. Uh, she just obliterated the guilt. And this man was given at that moment the privilege of eternal life in heaven. The man's heart must have been like that publican in Luke 18 who said, 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went home in righteousness, Jesus said. Well, this apparently was just what the hostile leaders, the scribes, some of the Pharisees were looking for. So in verse 6, we meet them. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Now, what's fascinating about this, it says in verse 6, they weren't saying this. They were just thinking it. And so, here's their conclusion. This guy is a blasphemer. He's a blasphemer. Well, he's either a blasphemer or he's gone. And in their minds, he's a blasphemer. Now, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he speaks to them. In verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Was that a shock or what? They had been thinking and Jesus read their minds. He read their minds. He's aware of their thoughts. And now, if you're debating whether Jesus is a blasphemer or God, you can start there. Blasphemers don't know what people are thinking. Only God does. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord looks on the heart. 1 Kings 839 says, for you know the hearts of all men. First Chronicles 28.9 says, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Jeremiah 17.10 reads, I, the Lord, search the heart. And Ezekiel 11.5 says, I know the things that come into your mind. Every one of them. Okay, now. Got that. We move to a second reality. Verse 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Now, if the man does what Jesus tells him to do, if he gets up and picks up his bed and walks out, guess what? Jesus is God, right? He's not a blasphemer. And if he's God, then he can forgive sin. Something only 
God can do. If he displays the power to heal, if he displays the power to do creation miracles, he has to be God. And if he is God, then he has the authority to forgive sin. So, if he has said, take up your bed and walk, and the man takes up his bed and walks, that's the evidence that Jesus is God. And it validates the fact that he said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That also becomes reality. Only God can do both of those things. So, three separate commands he gives him in verse 11. Get up, pick up, and go home. And he did it. He got up, picked up, and went home. Uh, it was an instant, total, unmistakable display by the Creator God. Luke adds that as he left, he was glorifying God. Folks, that man got a full package that day, didn't he? Uh, a new body and a new heart. He got the whole deal. What a day that was for him. And he was probably more than willing to help pay to replace the roof, uh, probably. So, we met that curious crowd and the believing sinner, the forgiving savior, and the hostile leaders. Now Mark brings us back to that crowd. And we get the reaction, the setting, the uh, action, and now the reaction. We've seen the setting, the action. Here's the reaction, verse 12. Middle of the verse. The man walks out of sight of everybody with his bed rolled up, it's a little pallet, probably a little soft, flat mat that you could roll up and put under your arm and walked out. They were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The astonished crowd. The astonished crowd. That's all we ever seem to get out of the crowds that came to Jesus. Luke 5 says they were filled with fear. Phobio, from which we get phobia. It includes panic, or a combination of panic, confusion, awe, reverence. But he was still a man to them. Uh, 
the, uh, they were not uh, in the position of the paralytic to accept that he was God. And that crowd reminds me of another crowd that uh, the Apostle John writes about in the second chapter of his gospel and the 23rd verse where he says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. That crowd there that Mark talks about reminds me, my mind went immediately to that crowd there uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, also, I'm, I'm thinking about, remember after Jesus fed the 5,000 and they later were searching for him and, and uh, he told them, you're not interested in me. All you want is that food. So the crowds continued. Jesus continued. And here to me is, uh, maybe call it a miracle, a major point in this story. Uh, Jesus healed the man. The man was saved. He had his sins forgiven. He was a believer in his heart. But the crowd was curious. Uh, they were unsympathetic, really, and resembled many of the crowds that uh, Jesus met all through the time he was here preaching the gospel. And the crowds, curious, seeking healings, sometimes amazed, sometimes glorifying, but by and large not accepting what Jesus was offering to them spiritually. And here's the miracle, it didn't stop Jesus from knocking. Jesus kept on in the face of the curious crowds, in the face of the crowds that would not, by and large, accept what he was saying. But he kept on. He persisted right up to the cross and uh, continued to, to do miracles. So Jesus was doing all of these miracles like with this that Mark records uh, so that he could say 
that he came to forgive sinners. And not only to forgive sinners, but to provide the sacrifice on which that forgiveness is based. And so, nothing has changed in that regard. The crowds still are curious. You hear a lot of talk about Jesus and who he was and what was his mission. And, uh, and some repent. Jesus said somewhere about the narrow is the way. Few there be that find it. Maybe this is why. The fact of the matter is we know that Jesus is still speaking to spiritual paralytics. Jesus still speaks. Jesus is still knocking at the door. And Jesus continues to say, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Would you please, uh, while Pastor Chad comes to dismiss us, bless us, would you please stand? Our Father, we do thank you for being here with us today, for bringing us here together, for calling us to your Son. We thank you for this message we've just heard, the reminder that Christ's primary mission on earth is to bring us into full forgiveness that we might enjoy him forever. And we ask you, Lord, that you will walk with us this day. Keep us in mind that you know our hearts, you know our thoughts, you search our very being. And it is all for our good that we might know the joy of walking with him in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.